morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for allowing me to preach gospel to you all today. Before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to worship you by hearing your word. Please help me to preach and teach your word faithfully so that all of us here may be transformed in the way how we think and how we prioritize our lives to pursue this heavenly prize we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, today, sermons is a continuation of last week's passage. You can think of it as part two to our previous sermon. If possible, please do keep your Bibles and service order open, which will help you to follow the structure and applications of our passage. Our sermon title today is called Reaching for the Heavenly Prize. And the big idea is Christians should single-mindedly press toward the goal of resurrection by following the examples of godly Christians. Before entering into our passage, let's do a quick recap first. Last week, Andrew took us through the concept of rejoicing in the Lord. We learned that for the Philippians church, rejoicing in the Lord means safeguarding their joy from the gospel taught by the Judaizers. To safeguard their joy, Paul appeals to the Philippians with his own personal testimony by saying, Hey, look at me. Consider my past life. If anything, I was more Jewish than them. I was more passionate than them to try to earn my salvation in keeping the Mosaic law. I was everything these Judaizers wants to be. I've accomplished more than them. But you know what? None of this matters anymore. If anything, I have given them up because they are a hindrance, hindering me from knowing Jesus. In fact, they are actually rubbish. For Paul, what really matters end of the day is to gain Jesus by knowing him from the right gospel and knowing him experientially throughout the entire salvation process, starting with only being justified by faith and continuing with being conformed to Christ's death by sharing in his suffering and finally experiencing the power of his resurrection. All of this worked together with the aim for Paul to attain the resurrection of the dead. However, Paul knows that he hasn't attained this promise of resurrection, which is why he says in verse 12 to 13, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Notice here, Paul says that he isn't perfect. This is not talking about him being perfect in the sense of moral perfection. No, rather it's actually referring to the consummation of his salvation, which will not be perfect and complete until he obtained the resurrection of his body. So the resurrection here is the goal for Paul to keep pressing on, to keep running forward, to receive the prize at the end of the race. Paul likened himself here to be a, like a marathon runner. And it's not just for him, it's for us as well. Our Christian lives are like a race where we continue to strive forward. But this race is not like any normal running competition. In a normal race, only the top few runners get to win the prize. But in this Christian race. It doesn't matter how fast or how slow you run. 
The real challenge here is to persevere in this Christian race until the very end. Then the price of resurrection will be given to anyone who reaches the end of the finish line. Just like Paul, we have yet to obtain the perfection of our salvation until the day of Christ comes. Therefore, we need to keep pressing on, to press ahead in this race by forgetting what lies behind and strain forward to that which lies ahead. Just to be clear here, the word forget in verse 13 does not literally mean to erase and wipe out all of our memories from our brain. No, Paul does not mean that. What he's saying here is about letting go and no longer holding on to his past accomplishments of keeping the Mosaic law. And he was a Pharisee. Because all these things were hindering him and holding him back from gaining Christ. Paul knows that he wouldn't be able to meet God's holy and perfect standard unless he keeps the Old Testament law perfectly. He knows that he cannot earn salvation by trying to be justified by the law. Only faith in Jesus can justify him before God. Without Jesus, there'll be no salvation for Paul. That's why he said in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the price of the outward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is a call for us to abandon all the self-righteousness we have accomplished. Don't say, oh, I have been a good person all of my life. I haven't done anything wrong or bad. I may not be perfect, but I'm a good person. I don't sin so much. Some of my sins also don't seem to be very bad or so. No, dear friends, we cannot think this way. Our works cannot help us to earn salvation because our works can never measure up to God's holy and perfect standard. We cannot earn justification through our works. If all obedience in keeping the Old Testament law isn't good enough for God, then what more about our, our works? So for us to press on like Paul is to put our self-righteous works in the past and not looking back at them and looking to Jesus instead because only by believing in him we can be justified by grace through faith and to share in his sufferings when persecution comes so that we can become like him in his death which is exactly what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1 verse 29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So to press on is to believe in Jesus and to be willing to suffer and persecution comes. Also when we look at verse 14 carefully notice that it says the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This actually has the same meaning as verse 12. When it mentions Christ Jesus has laid hold of Paul, it reminds us of Paul's conversion experience at Damascus, where Christ Jesus has called Paul to salvation and to ministry. From here again, we are reminded of the theme of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Like the encouragement Paul gave to Philippians, God has begun a good work in Paul, and God will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Like the exhortation he gave to the Philippians, Paul will work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in Paul, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. God has called Paul, and Paul responds to this calling by pressing on toward the goal of this resurrection prize. 
single-mindedly like a marathon runner. This price is for Paul and he will receive it for sure in due time, guaranteed by God's sovereignty without discounting any human efforts. So don't say that this Christian race is too difficult. Don't say you are not able to run. Don't say you are out of gas and unable to persevere. Because no matter how hard this race is, no matter how tough life becomes, end of the day, we are all here dependent on the grace of God. If you are already willing to run and to press forward, then that in itself is a sign that God has already called you and worked in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that means His grace will enable us to run forward to this prize that lies ahead of us. So take comfort in this truth, brothers and sisters. Take comfort in the grace of God. But if you find this race to be too overbearing for you, please reach out to us and let us know how can we help you, how can we be praying for you, and how can we keep pointing you to the grace of God. Now in verse 15, Paul goes on to say, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In this verse, Paul invites the Philippians to think the same way as him by having the same priority and the same goal, to be single-mindedly focusing on the price of the upward call of God. Thus, for those who are able to think the same way as him, they will be considered to be spiritually mature in their faith. But among those Philippians who think differently, unable to bring themselves to agree with Paul. For some reason, maybe they can't grasp how significant the price that lies ahead. Or maybe they have prioritized other goals more than what they have in Christ. But whatever it is, Paul isn't anxious. He has done his job in exhorting them faithfully, and now he rests on the sovereignty of God. Since God has begun a good work in the Philippians, he too trusts that God will correct those who disagree with Paul in due time by revealing to them that Paul's way of thinking is the right way of thinking. However, we don't know how God will change their thinking. It could be through supernatural revelation or through very ordinary ways. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter because God can work in many different ways. In verse 16, Paul says, However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So regardless of whether the Philippians will agree or disagree with Paul, he urges them to live by the same standard. Basically means to live out their lives obediently in response to the revelation they have received from God so far. After inviting them to transform their way of thinking, to think the same way as him, he now invites them in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul invites them to follow in his example and also others who exemplify the same example as well. Who are these people? Well, at least from this episode, we can see the example of Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Beginning with Paul, He's willing to believe and suffer for the sake of the gospel. He's also full of humility, counting the needs of the Philippian spiritual growth to be more important than his own desires, to the point that he willings to stay alive in order to minister to them than to die and be with Jesus. 
You can also see the example of Timothy, who looked not to his own interests, but to the interests of Jesus Christ, by being genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. Next, we can see the example of Epaphroditus, who served the needs of Paul on behalf of the Philippians to the point of falling sick and almost died. For Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, why are they willing to do all these things? The reason is because they have set their eyes on the upward price they have in Christ Jesus and not on earthly things. That is why they can be a good example for the Philippians. But what about us? If today we talk about who is our role model, who is our inspiration, who will we think, who will we think of beside our parents? Maybe it will be some successful entrepreneur like Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX and Tesla. Maybe Jack Ma, the co-founder of Alibaba Group, who came from a very modest background, faced numerous rejections and failure before achieving success. And this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because we look to them first. Not to say Elon Musk and Jack Ma are bad examples. It's totally okay to put them as our role models in the secondary sense. But our first and foremost examples we seek to emulate in our lives should be good and godly Christians like Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So who are these people like them around us? Are we walking in their examples, seeking to be like them? Are we allowing them to influence us more than Elon Musk and other successful celebrities we see on the media? And dear parents, please, 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 please emulate the examples of Paul and other godly men so that your children can grow up in godliness. Parents, please tell your children who are the godly Christians who inspired you so that they can too be inspired to grow in their spiritual walk with Christ. One of my friends, her mother-in-law, attends church every Sunday, but somehow she likes to verbally and physically abuse my friend and her daughter. Clearly, the mother-in-law wasn't setting herself to be a good example like Paul and Timothy. Do you know what happened? My friend's daughter now, she doesn't want to go to church anymore. She keeps on saying, Go to church for what? Church is filled with so many hypocrites. I don't want to go to church anymore. Now this application is not just for parents, it's for all of us here. Even though we fall short in many ways, sometimes behaving like hypocrites, including myself. But nevertheless, it's not too late for us to repent now. So let's repent and strive to be godly examples together as a church for each other, and for other Christians outside this church. So Paul doesn't want us to follow in his examples for nothing. There are two reasons why he wants us to follow in his example. The first reason is in verse 18 to 19, to warn the Philippians what is the consequence of walking in the opposite way of Paul. He warns them by saying, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And the second reason is in verse 20 to 21, to encourage the Philippians. What is the reward that awaits them if they follow in the example of Paul? 
He encourages them by saying, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Basically, Paul is saying, Make sure you follow me and others who set a good and godly example, yeah? Because so many people, the people I told you again and again, didn't want to follow our examples and chose to walk as the enemies of Christ. So don't follow them. Right? Follow our examples and you will receive the resurrection of our body from Jesus. Looking at verse 18 in detail, scholars have difficulty pinpointing who are these enemies that Paul mentioned. Judging from this passage, it seems to me that Paul does not have the intention to tell us who these people are. Regardless of who they are, the point Paul is trying to make is that these people, they are walking as the enemies of the cross of Christ. They have heard the gospel and they have rejected it. They have chosen to be the enemies of Christ. And it is obvious that this rejection wasn't done out of ignorance. Why? Because they know that they are in the wrong, yet they still chose to live a sinful lifestyle instead of repenting from their sins and turning to Jesus. They chose to glorify in their shame. In verse 19, Paul describes that the God of these people is their belly. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said that your stomach is given to you so that you may feed it, not so that it may burst. The God of the stomach can control the whole body, so keep it under control. From our own experience, I'm sure you all can relate to what John Chrysostom has said, right? How powerful our stomach can be in controlling us. When we are craving for some food, say KFC, right? the fried chicken, Penang Chao Kway Tiao, Nasi Lemak, Klang Bakute, despite the fact that we know they are very, very unhealthy and very, very fattening. I'm sure you all can relate to the fact that it's not easy to suppress this craving, right? It's easier to burst our stomach than to keep it under control. This description from Paul, right? as dramatic as it is, right, regarding a stomach, but it's not meant to be taken literally. It is a metaphor to describe the sinful appetites of these people to be as powerful as the cravings of our stomach. Instead of worshipping the one true God, they chose to worship their own sinful appetites and desires. These sinful appetites of theirs can only be satisfied with earthly things, which is why their mind is set on earthly things. Earthly things that are not spiritual, not godly, like sexual immorality, worldly ambitions to satisfy their cravings. But that will only lead to their destruction. But even though they are the enemies of the Christian faith, and even though these people, they deserve eternal destruction as their judgment, yet still, Paul feels sorrowful for them with tears. Brothers and sisters, this shows us that even the Apostle Paul, he faced rejection from people after evangelizing to them. How much more it will be for the same of, for, for us? We can expect disappointment, sorrow, and pain when we face rejection. There are times people will reject the gospel immediately and there are times when people whom we disciple and taught they to be Christians ended up leaving the faith. 
But you know what? It's okay to feel just as sad as Paul. And we can take this sorrow to God in prayers. But at the same time, don't forget about the salvation we have in Jesus that we can rejoice in, despite the sorrow coming from those people who reject the gospel. Moreover, let's keep watch on ourselves too, so that we will not walk in the way of destruction, lest we cause sorrow to and disappointment to other brothers and sisters. In response to that, let's follow the imperative of Paul, not to set our minds on the temporary things of this earth, and to lift up our minds to the heavenly prize that lies ahead by following the examples of Paul and other godly men. But if you are not in Christ and you have not accepted the gospel, may I urge you to take the next step of becoming a Christian. For God has proclaimed in his holy scriptures that our Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh to die for our sins on the cross. And on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. So whoever believes in him and humbly repents from their sins will be forgiven and receive eternal life. But if you reject the gospel, the consequence can be quite serious. I don't like to point this out, but it is in verse 19. The consequence of rejecting the gospel is destruction. Because when you are not in Christ, then you are the enemies of Christ. So please don't let us grieve for you like how the Apostle Paul grieved for the enemies of Christ. So I pray that you will come to accept the gospel that we may rejoice in your salvation. Continuing with the second reason in verse 20 to 21, Paul tells the Philippians why they should follow his example. It's because of the future hope they have in Christ. First, he reminds us what is the meaning of true citizenship in verse 20. For the Philippians, their true identity is that they are first and foremost citizens of heaven and not citizens of Rome. And this is the same for us too. We are pilgrims and exiles on this earth. Being a Malaysian is our secondary identity because our spiritual passport tells us our primary citizenship is in heaven. And in verse 21, Paul calls our body as a lowly body. Why is that the case? Because of sin, our body will grow old, fall sick, die, perish and rot in the grave. I know many brothers and sisters in our midst are facing lots of pain and suffering, either from old age or from some sort of bodily dis uh, illness. Some here may have bodily suffering because of terrible accidents or from some terrible violence. But some of us here are in good health, still nevertheless experience the lowliness of our bodies. Because as long as we are alive in this lowly body, we will struggle with sin and temptation every day. Both physical ailment and our struggles with sin can indeed make us feel like life is so difficult, so unbearably painful, full of suffering, so much so until we cry out, Lord, take me home. I don't want to live anymore. I don't have the strength to press on. Lord, I can't carry on anymore. What's the point of continuing to live in this lowly and dreadful body? If any of you are feeling like this, please reach out to us. Let us pray for you. You are not alone in this struggle. 
we want you to know that we are with you on this journey. So hang in there. I know the pain and suffering are a lot to bear. But don't forget about the fact that we are still awaiting from heaven our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly loves us and He cares for us. That is why He has promised to transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. This is the resurrection, the heavenly prize that lies ahead of us. And this glorious bodily resurrection is guaranteed to whoever is in Christ. Because the power that resurrects us is the same power from God that enables Jesus even to subject all things to himself. And I hope this future hope will give you a higher perspective in life that it may encourage you and give you the strength to persevere in this Christian race. But don't forget, dear friends, if we want this glorious bodily resurrection, then we need to walk in the examples of Paul and those who follow in his examples. How we live our lives here today must be consistent with our true citizenship in heaven. Finally, Paul ends in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, even at the end of this section, we can see that Paul's ministry to the Philippians is not driven by selfish ambition, but rather out of love and affection for them. He truly loves them and he longs to see them again. He treats them as his joy and crown. That's why earlier ago he said he's willing to be poured out as a drink offering for their faith. As his joy and crown, <coughs> Paul urges them to stand firm thus in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord here is to do everything that he said in our passage today. <coughs> that means to stand firm in the Lord is to keep pressing on in our Christian marathon, to keep our eyes on the price that lies ahead by thinking and walking the same way as Paul and other godly men, without looking at our self-righteousness which ought to be put in the past and continuing to trust in Jesus despite being discouraged by those who reject the gospel and despite the condition of our lowly bodies. And speaking of joy and crown here, even though this is a very big church, but let's do our best to be a joy and crown for each other. Think of the person who has mentored you in the past or who is currently discipling you. Do you want to be their joy and crown? To make them proud on the day of Jesus Christ that they did not run or labor in vain for you. My hope is that when the day comes, we will be proud and filled with joy seeing all of us here and our loved ones made it safely to the side of heaven. So the challenge for us here today is we single-mindedly press toward the goal and heavenly prize of the resurrection by following the examples of Paul and other godly people who walk the same as him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today in exhorting us to strain forward to the heavenly resurrection prize we have in Jesus. Help us to make that as the highest priority in our lives. And help us to follow the example of your servant, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Aphroditus, and those who walk in your holy ways, so that we may attain the resurrection of the dead. Father, we know that this is not easy, but we pray that you will grant us the grace to persevere in running this race, 
without looking back at what lies behind us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.